0: We are in the book of James. Last week we finished chapter 2, where we talked about two things really. The first part of chapter 2 was whatever measure that you use in judging your neighbor will be used by God to judge you. And the other part of that was that faith that doesn't inform works is no faith. And there we had the example of Abraham offering up his son What we talked about there is that Paul speaks about the conversion of Abraham, as does James. Paul is talking about the beginning of the process in Genesis 15, and James is talking about the end of the process. So they're really talking about the same subject from two different perspectives. So now we're in chapter 3. One of the things about James, this is regarded as the Proverbs of the New Testament, and James is a Hebrew, and he has grown up with the Tanakh, and he's used to thinking in terms of Hebrew wisdom literature, and he's writing to Hebrews, so he's talking in Hebrew speak, whereas Paul, when he's talking and writing to Gentiles, is talking to people who have no perspective and experience on the Bible, so he's got to come at it from a different perspective. James' is uh, more mainline Bible, and a lot of his stuff, reads like Proverbs. Now, let, let me read the first sentence and, and talk about it for a minute. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you don't come at this from the perspective of Proverbs, it just sort of looks like he drops that there and just goes on and talks about something else. I will suggest he's not. What I'll suggest to you is the rest of the chapter is a riff on teaching and wisdom. So he starts off and he says, not many people should become teachers. Then he goes and talks about all the pathologies that can overcome people who aspire to be teachers. And then he comes to verse 13, and says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, one would expect that a teacher would be wise and understanding. So what I'm suggesting to you is this entire chapter is talking about the same subject in the context, then, of teaching. And he says that teachers will be judged with greater strictness. In other words, somebody who presumes to step up and talk about the Word of God, God will look at him, and say, are you, in fact, teaching my word accurately? So that's very straightforward. Then we have four, we all stumble in many ways. So the reason not many should become teachers is because we all stumble in many ways. And by the way, he is not exempting himself from that. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body, But if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So now it looks like he's sort of shifted over into something else. And what I will suggest he hasn't shifted at all. What he's talking about is teachers who traffic in words, who themselves are frail human beings, need to especially bridle their tongues. They need to make sure that the stuff that comes out of their mouths. Is pleasing to God. Now, he's going to talk here in terms of pathologies of speech. And again, I'll suggest that's in the context of teaching. And remember, he started off and says, Not many of you should become teachers. Then he starts talking about the pathologies of speaking. And what I'll suggest is he is saying that a lot of people who become teachers do so for the wrong reasons. And their tongues then trip them up. Kind of interesting. One of the things that I'm doing at the moment is I've got a Facebook page where I'm posting three times a week various teachings. And one of the things that's really interesting is people will like the page. And of course, once they like it, you can then go back and look at their own Facebook page and see who they are and you know that kind of stuff. Anyway, quite a few black people And you sort of get the impression that they're fundamental Baptist, Pentecostal, solid, mainstream Christian folks. And one of them was just going off on black television preachers, saying that the only reason these people stand up and preach is because they want your money. And I was studying for James as I was sort of reading this, and I said, huh. Maybe that's part of who he's talking about as people, not many of whom should become teachers, because they're teaching not to glorify God, but they are teaching to rake in money. And so, if you sort of put that hat on here as you're reading this part of James, I think you will not be far astray. So, anyway, the first thing he's saying is not many should become teachers because. You'll be judged more strictly because we all stumble in many ways. In other words, nobody says anything perfectly or nobody is perfect. And if anyone doesn't stumble in that way, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So the person who does not stumble is perfect. And in parentheses, I will suggest such a person does not exist in captivity. And if he is perfect, then he is able to bridle his whole body. And then from there, we go to putting bits into the mouths of horses. So you have this 1,200-pound horse, and if you've got a bit in his mouth, that all 1,200 pounds goes wherever you point his head. So what he's then saying is that the tongue in people is analogous, if you will, and he uses then the analogy of a rudder on a ship um, and a small blaze that kindles a forest fire. So the whole idea here is, again, back as teachers and wisdom, and most of them cannot, in fact, bridle their tongues, and they are not, in fact, under control. And oh, by the way, this is straight out of Proverbs. You go back to Proverbs, and Proverbs talks about bridling the tongue a great deal. If you're able to control your tongue, everything else about you follows Let's pick it up at the beginning, and I'm just going to read through the paragraph. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Notice it is we who teach. He is a teacher. That we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So now, second half of verse five, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So again, we're talking about people who should not be teachers and their tongue is In this case, a small fire in a fireworks factory. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So the idea here is an uncontrolled tongue is like carrying matches into a munitions factory Verse seven. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. All right, now here you're going to have a chiasm. Verse 11 and 12 form a chiasm. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So you have salt and fresh, salt and fresh, and then a fruit tree unable to bring forth anything except by its nature. So by nature, a fig tree bears figs. It does not bear olives. And then we have the mixture of salt and fresh. And this is all in the context of people who either shouldn't be teachers or people who do aspire to be teachers, cautioning them of the great power of their tongue in their position. So now, down to verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Well, one assumes that someone who aspires to be a teacher is going to be wise and understanding. Who is wise and understanding among you? by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What does meekness mean? It's an old English word, and I'm going to use the King James definition. A horse that is well trained is described as meek. So what it is, is power under control. It's someone who has, in this case, great wisdom, and he keeps it under control by bridling his tongue. So who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So now what we're talking about is that you're comparing somebody who is in fact worthy of being a teacher, someone who is wise and someone who has self-control, and someone whose works demonstrate that wisdom and self-control. And then that's going to be contrasted by someone who is unable to control his tongue. So verse 14 then, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So what he's saying is someone who aspires to teach, who aspires to wisdom, but in fact is unable to control his tongue, the wisdom of such a person is not the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of the world. So verse 60: For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So one can assume in context that one of the things that one would expect of a teacher is that he would be a peacemaker. The opposite is those who teach out of a motive of jealousy or selfish ambition, which takes me back to my televangelist comment earlier, okay what we're really dealing with in many cases of people who are trying to develop a following is ambition and not godly teaching. Not everybody. Don't get me wrong. There are pastors of big churches that are godly men. You cannot equate a large church with somebody who's demonic. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying the body of Messiah is populated with preachers who have those characteristics. Chapter four, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, one of the things that you can take this back to is a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And so what James is saying is, One of the things that causes quarrels in the community is that individuals have passions that are at war within themselves, and that internal war bubbles out to the surface and causes external strife. So is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, this is straight out of Proverbs. The style is Proverbs, it's a Mashal. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, we started back up in verse 1 talking about passions, didn't we? This is not specifically aimed at teachers now. That was. Pretty much chapter three, and that was pretty much contained. So now what we're doing is we're talking about disputes and quarrels within the body. Where do they come from? Why do they happen? And of course, eventually, what do you do about it? So the first thing he obviously says is you got stuff inside of you that you want, you care about. Back in Genesis three, the first thing that we did after we decided that we were going to be the ones who decided what's good and evil as opposed to letting God do it like he said. God says, enjoy all my stuff, except I get to decide what's good and bad. And we said, no, you don't. We'll decide. And we ate of the tree. Murder is the very next vignette, Cain and Abel. These things are built into us. And in the case of Cain and Abel, they both brought a sacrifice to God. And God said, Abel's sacrifice is acceptable. Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable. Cain says, wait a minute. I'm the one that decides what's good and bad. And I want my sacrifice to be acceptable. And so what he does is he kills his brother out of jealousy. So, what is his passion that is causing him to murder? Him? He wants to be the one who decides how God is going to be worshiped. He decides what's good and bad. What he's talking about here is starting from the very first vignette in the Scripture. We all have these passions that lead us to do things like commit murder and adultery and slander and all sorts of things. And what he's saying is your passions are not satisfied because you don't ask. And it's more than that, though. You don't ask rightly. You are praying out of your passion instead of letting God decide what's good and bad and praying out of the will of God it's the same thing that Cain does. And what Cain is doing is he is praying out of his own will. I want to decide how God's going to be worshipped instead of looking at God and saying, God, this is what you want. I will conform to that, in which case you then have access to all the riches of the kingdom. It is not the case that God doesn't want you to have stuff. He does. He knows you need it, so. The idea isn't that God doesn't want you to have stuff. What God wants you to have is what he wants you to have, which is not necessarily what your passions dictate. And what James is saying here is you don't have because you don't ask. Well, but you do ask. But you're asking for stuff that is according to your will, not according to God's will. And so God doesn't answer your prayers and that just makes you even grumpier. This is us, and you don't have to be wicked to have this talk to you. He's talking in stark terms, but it doesn't have to be as stark as murder. The principle is you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, there's stuff that you want and you can't get it, so that leads to quarrels and fights in the community And the reason you're not getting it is because you're asking for the wrong stuff. You're asking for what it is you want instead of trying to figure out what it is God wants for you. We all do it. This is not aimed at the reprobates. This is aimed at us all. So I'm now all the way down to verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? ding, 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 ding. Who's he writing to? Hebrews. So what is an adulterous people? People who are not going after what God wants. They are committing adultery against the God who is the father and the husband of Israel. So when he says adulterous people in this case, he's not talking about you and Jane messing around. What he's talking about is your affections are stayed on the world instead of being stayed on God. It's a Hebrewism, and he's writing to Hebrews. So in this context, he's not really talking about people who are sleeping around. He's talking about people who are not paying attention to God. Verse 4 again then. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Hebrew word for evil doesn't necessarily mean badly behaved. What it means is setting your affection on something that is not permanent, something that's not eternal. So when you set your affection on something that is not eternal, you then wind up doing all of the stuff that James is talking about. here. You wind up quarreling with each other. You wind up murdering and stealing and slandering and all that kind of stuff because your affections are not set on something eternal, they're set on something temporary or transitory. So in that sense, certainly bad behavior eventually follows, but the concept isn't necessarily badly behaved. It is you have your affections anchored on something that will not last, which is anything but God. This is something that we all struggle with. I certainly am not always stayed on God. My mind goes all over the place. And we are put here on the earth. This is the environment God put us into. He gave us a body. He gave us physical needs. So focusing on those things is not in itself wrong. Being captured by them is what's wrong. And it's so easy to be captured by them. And I will gently suggest that nobody is continually focused on the right thing. We all periodically get captured. And the hard part is when you do get captured, realize you've been captured and then back out before you do any damage. Verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I don't know where that is in Scripture. I don't think anybody does know where it is. Certainly God in some places describes himself as a jealous God. By the way, we haven't done this in a while. Everybody understand the difference between jealousy and envy? Jealousy is good. Envy is bad. Jealousy is being protective of something that belongs to you. And so, for example, I am jealous of my wife. And if somebody were to come and make moves on her, I would be rightly jealous because if she did not belong to him, she belongs to me. She's my wife. That's different than envy, which is, you have something that I want, and I am coveting this thing that you have. So one is good and the other one is bad. So God describes himself as jealous, and that's a good thing, because what he's doing is he is protective of something that belongs to him. Now, in our society, we have cast it in a negative light, simply because men are not supposed to possess women. So then being jealous has been cast as something that is nefarious and evil. Biblically, it is not so. All the way to six. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember, we started this whole thing earlier with being double-minded. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Which is now, down at the end, described as double-minded. Now, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There are some conditions here. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about people who are submitted to God and who, according to Malachi, walk humbly before their God. I have been in church services where people command the devil and all that kind of stuff. I, quite frankly, don't think that's terribly sound. It doesn't say you command the devil. It says you resist the devil. And when you resist the devil, if you are submitted to God, The devil will give up and You have authority, but your authority only has power insofar as you are aligned with God. If you are behaving in ways that are not lined up with what God wants and you then turn around and try and resist the devil, he's just going to look at you over his glasses like I am and saying, yeah, right, let's do it. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What he's talking about here in context is pride. So if you are walking around like you are hot stuff, what he's saying to you is, no, you're actually not hot stuff. What you need to do is humble yourself and let your boasting laughter... Boasting, I have put in there, it's not in Scripture. Let your boasting laughter be turned to weeping because you need to get yourself in proper relationship to God. Now, God, by the way, commands joy. So there's nothing wrong with laughing. Nothing wrong with being happy. He's talking in context here about the double-minded. And at that point, I am at a paragraph break, and we are coming up on the end of the hour, so if it's all right with you, I would like to quit at this point please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.